afraid of a global nuclear disaster? Or the likes of a Star Wars cosmic conflict? Are we on a countdown to the Battle of Armageddon? What does the future hold for our world? Have you tried to understand the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation only to be confused by all the symbols? These and many other amazing questions will be answered through this prophecy seminar. Yes, you can understand the books of Daniel and Revelation, and in the process, get to know God in a deeper way. Welcome to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel. Here is your host, Pastor David Price. Well, good evening, friends. I'd like to welcome you to our Daniel and Revelation Prophecy Seminar. And uh, in this session, we are going to be looking at lesson number 21. We are looking at the topic of the King of the North, and we're going to be in Daniel chapter 10 and Daniel chapter 11. I think one of the most important things we can do is that we spend a moment in prayer. Our loving Father in heaven, I want to thank you for this powerful opportunity to connect with the God of heaven through his word. Father, tonight we want to be shown wonderful things out of your book, the book of Daniel. And Father, we pray that the message that's given tonight will meet the need of every heart. And I thank you for hearing and answering this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, if you'd like to join me at the top of page two, those of you watching on YouTube might know that you go beyond or below the description and there you will find a link to the lessons which you can print out. Let's get started. Thanks for joining us. The book of Daniel is very much concerned with the sequence of nations that were to arise from Daniel's day to the end of time. Every prophecy in the book of Daniel intimately describes this panorama of the nations. Seven times already, Daniel has gone through this sequence. Twice in Daniel 2, once in the vision, and once in the interpretation. Then three times in Daniel 7, once in the vision, and then twice in the interpretation. And then twice in Daniel chapter 8 once in the vision and once in the interpretation. So in Daniel chapter 11, the prophet Daniel goes through this sequence for the eighth and final time. Since each succeeding prophecy unveils further details, we can expect to discover exciting new information about the end time in Daniel 11. So I have three discovery questions for you tonight, independent of the lesson. I'm going to ask this question. The lesson will answer it. Why aren't some prayers always answered immediately? That's a good question, isn't it? I'm sure many of you have asked that question. Number two, what order do the panorama of nations follow in Daniel 11? Is it going to be a different lineup to the previous uh, chapters? And number three, when does deliverance finally come to God's people? So thank you for joining us in Prophecy Lesson number 21. It's called The King of the North. I want to tell you that this lesson is one of the most challenging. Daniel chapter 11 is one of the um, most argued about and disputed books in the Bible. It has a lot of historical information. It also has at the end of Daniel 11 a lot of prophetic information. 
And so I want to tell you that it's very, very challenging material. So if you've been able to uh, prepare the lesson before this session, then that will add to your understanding. So let's get started. Our first heading tonight is controversy in Daniel chapter 10. This lesson will briefly survey Daniel chapter 10 so that the context of Daniel 11 is clear. In fact, Daniel 10 pulls aside the curtain and reveals to us the great controversy going on behind the events of world history. Once again, Daniel is reminding us that in the rise and fall of empires, God is still in control of world events. And that's one of the themes that will continue to pop up as we go through this amazing lesson of Daniel chapter 10 and Daniel chapter 11. So thank you so much for joining us for Prophecy Seminar Lesson 21. And we go straight to question one. What does Daniel do for three weeks? We start at the very beginning of Daniel chapter 10 in these series of uh, uh, seminars. We're using the New King James Version. So 868 refers to the page number that our students are using in that Bible. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the date for that is 536, 535 BC. A message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. Now, I want to tell you that Daniel was 18 years old when he was taken into captivity in 605 BC. And so this is Daniel's 88th year. So he's a senior citizen when Daniel chapter 10 takes place. So friends, it's the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Uh, a message comes to Daniel. And the message was true, but the appointed time was long. And Daniel understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. We go to verse 3 of Daniel 10. He said, I ate no pleasant food. No meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three weeks or three whole weeks were fulfilled. I think some of you might have been looking at the commentaries about what the anointing oneself was in ancient times. It was often the application of oils. What does Daniel do for these three weeks? The answer is that he was mourning. We need to find out a little bit more about this. Daniel was worried about the return to Jerusalem and the rebuilding efforts that were taking place in his home city as he was captive in Babylon. All right, so please direct your attention to the screen. We're going to ask the question, why did Daniel fast? Now, some of you, I'm sure, picked up in Daniel chapter 10, verse 3, that Daniel ate no meat or wine. Now, some of you might have thought that Daniel had relapsed from Daniel chapter 1, uh, where he would not eat the king's meat, which was uh, defiled. It was unclean. It was unclean because it was unclean animals. It was unclean and defiled because it had been offered to idols. And uh, so the question comes up, is Daniel now eating meat? And um, he didn't partake of the king's alcoholic wine. And now he's saying that uh, he actually chose not in Daniel 10 to eat the meat or the wine. So we have to ask, what's going on? Why did Daniel fast? 
what's the story behind the story? Well, Daniel's prayer and fast take place during Nisan, which was during the Jewish Passover and the Jewish Feast of Unleavened Bread. These celebrations and feast days in Israel lasted for seven days. But you remember that Daniel was in mourning and fasting for 21 days, which is three whole three full weeks. Notice that Daniel is explicit in mentioning that he did not partake of the Jewish ritualistic meals of meat and wine. And those actually refer back the meat to the Passover, the Passover lamb, and of course the wine which would be drunk with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So let's find out a little bit more. We go to Secrets of Daniel, The Wisdom and Dreams of a Jewish Prince in Exile, and quote from this book. Jewish commentators have wondered about this irregularity that makes Daniel transgress the commandments of eating the lamb and the four cups of wine. They justify Daniel's decision, however, on the grounds that the interruption of the temple's construction warranted such a response. So there's our answer as to why he was mourning. He was grieving the fact that his home city, the temple's construction had been interrupted and something had happened to delay everything. That's from Jacques Ducan's book, Secrets of Daniel. So we've just learned that Daniel transgresses the Jewish commandment of eating the lamb and the four cups of wine in the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This comes out of Daniel 10.3, where we started, I ate no pleasant food, nor meat, nor wine. The King James translates no pleasant food as pleasant bread. He didn't eat. He was fasting. So Daniel stopped eating the food associated with the Passover feast because the construction of the temple in Jerusalem had been halted. Some of you might be interested to jot down in your lesson to look up Esther 4, uh, chapter 4 and verse 16 for a similar fast day. Well, how does this all relate? What's this all about? And what about the lamb in the Passover? Well, friends, this was fulfilled. Um, what was in the Old Testament was going to be fulfilled in the New Testament. In John 1.29, it says the next day, John, who was John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so, friends, you and I know that Jesus Christ was that divine sacrifice. He was the divine Lamb and Jesus was the fulfillment of that lamb that was sacrificed in ancient times during the Passover feast. In terms of the wine, was it fermented? Was it unfermented? What is the context of that? Friends, wine in the Bible can stand for the blood of Christ shed for the sins of many. The word wine in scripture is a generic term. It can mean fermented. It can mean unfermented like grape juice. And so we read in Matthew 26, 28 and 29, at the Last Supper, the communion service, Jesus said, as he held the cup with the wine in it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So friends, as the flatbread had no leaven in it, leaven represents sin and 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8 tells us that 
then the cup must have no fermentation in it because the bread symbolizes the body of Christ, the cup or the wine, which was the pure blood of the grape, Deuteronomy 32, 14. That represented Jesus' blood. So the bread had to be pure and the cup of wine or the freshly pressed grapes, the grape juice, had to also represent Jesus' sinless body. And that's what took place at the Passover. Please join me back on page two, halfway down. We're up to question number two. Who appeared to Daniel at the end of the three weeks? And we look at verses four to 10 in Daniel 10. Now on the 24th day of the first month, and I thought some of you would ask me when that was, it's the March, April 536 BC in the Babylonian Persian calendar, or in the Jewish calendar, it is the year 535 BC. That's why we often have a like 536 slash 535 BC date, depending on the two calendars used. Now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked and beheld a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Euphaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in colour, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigour was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet while I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his uh, word, I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. Who appeared to Daniel at the end of the three weeks? The answer is a certain man clothed in linen. Who is this, friends? Do any of you know? By comparing this vision with the one John the Revelator saw in Revelation 1, we learn that this person who appeared to Daniel was none other than Jesus Christ himself. How do we know that? Well, from lesson two, we know that, but let's just remind ourselves of the text. If you want to add the text in under the note, under question two, please write in there, Revelation chapter one, 13 to 16, we get a similar description of this man who we believe is Jesus Christ. John wrote in vision, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the son of man, clothed with the garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. So friends, there is a description of the Lord Jesus Christ 
And it appears that the Lord Jesus Christ has revealed himself to Daniel in the Old Testament. Whatever's going on in Daniel chapter 10 and 11 is very, very important. Well, question three says, why didn't help come to Daniel immediately when he started to pray? Let's have a look at verses 11 to 13, but let's start again in verse 10. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days and behold michael one of the chief princes came to help me for i had been left alone there with the kings of persia well why didn't help come to daniel immediately when he started to pray the answer is that the prince of the kingdom of persia withstood me 21 days Friends, you know, when we pray to God, there's always three possibilities of an answer. There's a yes answer, there's a no answer, there's a wait answer, but there's also a third factor, sorry, a fourth factor, and that factor is that there can be spiritual warfare going on from demons, from fallen angels interfering with the prayers that we send up to God. And this particular chapter opens the door and shows us it draws the curtain back and shows us the unseen world of spiritual battles and spiritual warfare. And so the help didn't come to Daniel immediately because there was demonic interference in the request. And so the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Please have a look at the screen as I go to the note under question three. God drew aside the curtain and revealed to Daniel the cosmic struggle behind the scenes. Cyrus was the reigning king of Persia, but Daniel was shown that there was a cosmic force working on Cyrus behind the scenes. That cosmic power was Satan and his angels who were doing their best to influence the king of Persia in order to prevent him from fulfilling the prophecy to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. For three weeks, the struggle continued Christ was victorious. He assured Daniel that the future was in God's control. Friends, that's our, that's our theme tonight, that it may appear like this world is out of control, but this world is still under the control of God. Unfortunately, God gets all the blame for the devil's work of death and destruction. All right. Would you join me at the top of page four in question four? Who would be the subject of the rest of the vision in Daniel 10 and verse 14? Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision refers to many days yet to come. So who'd be the subject of the rest of the vision? 
The messenger says, I'm come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. It's to do with the people of God, the children of Israel. This is why it is so important. The only nations that are mentioned in prophecy are nations that affect the covenant people of God. This is why many nations are not mentioned in scripture. So friends, I've been asked why China or India or Russia are not specifically mentioned in scripture. And the answer is that the nations mentioned in scripture usually have some incredible connection and influence or are influenced by God's people in the nation of Israel. Question five, Daniel fainted at the revelation of what was to happen to God's people. But what did God do to Daniel? We're in Daniel chapter 10, verses 15 to 19. When he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. Now, I want you to notice here, there are three tests of a prophet that we just notice as we go. When someone is possessed by the Holy Spirit and gives prophecy, they often become speechless. Verse 16, and suddenly one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, my Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me and I have retained no strength. There's the second test for prophets that they have no strength in their body become very weak as they're possessed by the spirit of prophecy when daniel 10 17 for how can this servant of my lord daniel talk with you my lord as for me no strength remains in me now nor is any breath left in me now that's impossible except under the power and control of god and so that is the third test of a prophet then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong, yes, be strong. So this is what the angel uh, talks to Daniel about. Uh, I believe it's the angel Gabriel. Daniel fainted at the revelation of what was to happen to God's people. But what did God do to Daniel? Then again, the one having the likeness of a man, in other words, the angel, possibly Gabriel, touch me and strengthen me. So friends, there is our answer. What a revelation of God. He came so close to the prophet, he even touched him and gave him strength. Question six, who are the next two powers that will affect the covenant people and that God would have to contend with? In Daniel 10, 20 and 21. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I've gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. The King James refers that to and translates that as the prince of Grecia will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. Friends, Michael. The name is very interesting. It's Mikael. The E-L ending is the name of God. E-L-O-H-I-M, Elohim. And it means one like or one equal with God. So this messenger says that this is a scripture of truth and no one is contending against these evil powers 
except that Michael the Prince has come down to do battle as well. Who are the next two powers that will affect the covenant people and that God would have to contend with? The answer is the Prince of Persia and the Prince of Greece. I'm going to pause a moment. I want you to look on the screen and I'd like to share with you a quote from a book called Daniel. We're asking who are these two princes? This prince is not the king of the kingdom of Persia, but rather the angelic leader of Persia, a fallen angel, in other words, a demon, under the direction of Satan, in contrast to the prince Michael, who leads and protects Israel. So friends, when we are translate this and we see who are these two princes, I am reminded of Ephesians 6.12. Do you remember what it says? For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against who? Against what? The answer is principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness and spiritual wickedness in high places. So friends, these two princes are evil angels controlling the kingdoms. These princes are, in fact, principalities. Let's go to the note. Before Daniel was given the delineation of empires and kings that would affect the covenant people of God, God revealed to Daniel that a cosmic struggle was unraveling. God allowed Daniel to see that he worked against Satan's attempts to subvert the divine purpose by contending with the forces of darkness to accomplish God's plans. Again, we are given the divine assurance that God is in control of world events and world history. Things don't just happen. God controls world events to accomplish the divine purpose. Friends, I just want to pause for a moment and say that many people today in our culture and climate of last day events are finding that they're very, very afraid of what's going on. In fact, the text of Luke 21, 25, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, I think is being fulfilled at this time. But I want you to know that beyond all of these intrigues, beyond all the affairs on planet earth, God is patiently working out the, uh, the directives of his will in the kingdom of heaven. The God of heaven is still in control. And so things don't just happen. God controls world events to accomplish the divine purpose. We do not need to fear if we're on God's side. The events of Daniel 11, let's have a look at the king of the north. The king of the north is a symbol of the powers that oppose God's people down through the ages. It is the term used to refer to those whom Satan has used in his attempt to destroy God's people. As Daniel centered our attention on the great controversy theme, as he approached the climax of the book in chapters 11 and 12, he wanted us to see clearly that this is not just the rise and fall of empires described here, but the cosmic drama of the ages being played out before our eyes as these various powers sought to destroy God's people. Daniel 11 will parallel Daniel 2, 7 and 8 and will add many more details. Daniel 11 is portraying the same panorama of empires as Daniel 2, 7 and 8. 
And so if you look on the screen, there's Medo-Persia, Greece, Pagan Rome, and then Papal Rome, the Papal system. Friends, um, if you look on the screen for the last 20 lessons, we've been on quite a journey. In Daniel 2, we went through the metal man, didn't we? That was uh, prophecy seminar lesson number four. We also covered Daniel 7. And so in Daniel 7, in the animals, we got more characteristics than we could deduce from actually the metal man and the metals. We could see the value from gold right down to iron and clay. But in Daniel 7, we see the different animals giving us the different perspectives and the strengths and weaknesses of those kingdoms. Then in Daniel 8, we have the ram, Medo-Persian. We have the hairy he-goat coming from the west, not touching the ground, standing for the nation of Greece. And then if you see on the bottom right-hand corner of the screen, we see the little horn power extending his power out and over the nation. So we've been on a huge journey. I thank you for your patience and your support and your prayers. Well, we're now at the top of page four in question seven. We're looking at the events of Daniel 11. So we're moving into Daniel 11. The lesson starts in verse two. I'm gonna start in verse one. Let's get the context. With what empire does Daniel 11 begin? Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, which is the angel, talking to Daniel from Daniel 10, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So the angel, possibly Gabriel, is there to strengthen Daniel. And he says to Daniel, and now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer. His strength through his riches, and he shall stir up all against the realm or the kingdom of Greece. With what empire does Daniel 11 begin? It speaks there of three more kings arising in Persia. What is this referring to? Friends, the four kings mentioned in this verse are Cambyses, False Myrtus, Darius, or Darius, and Xerxes, which were all kings of the Persian realm. If you have a look at the chart there, um, False Myrtus, ostensibly the second king is often not counted as a king of all due to his very brief reign of only eight months and so often cambyses and false murders are merged into one kingship making three kings cambyses forward slash false murders number two derives the first and number three xerxes so there are the kings and there are their reigns now there is a fifth king who you should know he was the son of xerxes he's very famous and in Prophecy Seminar Lesson 13, we talked about this king. He took part of his father's name and he came up and gave us a date um, for the rebuilding and uh, the restoration of Jerusalem in AD 457. Can you remember that king's name? It starts with A. Now, I believe many of you are great scholars, so the answer would have to be Artaxerxes. It's Artaxerxes I, also known as Artaxerxes Longomanus. Longomanus means long-handed. And he reigned from 465 to 425 BC. That's fascinating, isn't it? So friends, we have just looked at Medo-Persia. In question eight, we're hurrying on to Greece. So we're going to go from the belly of thighs of bronze across to the forehead of flying leopard and across to the goat coming from the west, not touching the ground. So let's find out a little bit more about Greece. 
Question eight, who was the mighty king that should stand up? I think in regard to Greece, everyone will know the answer in Daniel 11.3. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Who's the mighty king that would stand up? This mighty king who would stand up was, of course, Alexander the Great. Now, friends, the amazing thing about Alexander the Great is he only reigned for 13 to 14 years. It was a very brief time, but his star burned very brightly during that time, and he subdued many nations all the way from Greece down to Egypt, through Israel, and right across to India and as far as Pakistan. Question nine, what would happen to the kingdom after the death of Alexander the Great, verse four? And when he has arisen, that's the mighty king, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion, with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted, even for others beside these. So Alexander the Great had no heir. He was hardly home, was he? He was out conquering the nations. So what would happen to his kingdom after his death? The kingdom of Greece uh, and all those nations that he conquered would be divided up and it wouldn't be through his power, but it would be from those who were associated with him. Do you remember the four-headed flying leopard? I'm sure you do in Daniel chapter 7. Alexander's kingdom was divided among four of his generals. There was Cassander in Macedonia and Greece, Seleucus in Babylon and Assyria, Lysimachus in Thrace and Asia Minor, and Ptolemy took Egypt and Palestine. Friends, I want to tell you something amazing. And what is amazing is that we are trying to understand tonight Daniel chapter 11. This is a book that the scholars all have different opinions about. They dispute um, who the historical references go to. And so I want to tell you here is a book. This is a book and it's over 300 pages. A book of 300 pages. What is the topic of this book? The topic of this book is Daniel 11 decoded. So there's a 300 page book, an exegetical, historical and theological study by Jacques Dukan, one of my favorite lecturers and writers. He was the one who was my lecturer when I was doing my Master of Arts study program. So friends, there's whole books just on Daniel chapter 11 and we are trying to cover it in one brief evening. It's very deep, isn't it? The note at the bottom of four, page four says, notice the parallel between Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and Daniel 11 thus far. And we were asking a question, would Daniel 11 follow the same sequence in outline prophecy? Guess what? It absolutely does, and it absolutely will. Well, we're looking at Daniel 11 and trying to understand this amazing chapter. Question 10, we're at the top of page five. What symbol is now used to describe the two powers in the Grecian realm that fought against each other? Now, there's 10 or 11 verses here to wade through. You've done that for homework. I'm not going to actually read those verses to you tonight. Rather than read out the whole section, verses 5 to 15, and seek to explain the petty historical wars going on here, let's just step back from the trees and understand the big picture from the perspective of ancient Israel. Can I have your attention on the screen? And uh, let's give you a bit of historical background to these verses. 
So friends, verses 5 to 15 now focus on the two kingdoms with which God's people, the Jews, had the most contact. Both kingdoms to the north and the south of Israel came from the breakup of Alexander the Great's empire. Therefore, the Israelites knew the king of the north to be the Syrians ruled by the Seleucids. And of course, to the south, the king of the south was their old enemy, the king of Egypt now ruled by the Ptolemies. These two kingdoms warred back and forth for nearly 300 years, from around 300 BC to 30 BC. And do you know what? Israel was always caught in the middle of all this. Daniel added detailed descriptions to the various struggles between the different kings who carved up Alexander's empire. The symbols Daniel used for these various kings became the dominant symbols of Daniel 11, the king of the north and the king of the south. So friends, we have Cassandra in the west going through the four generals, Lysimachus in the north. Seleucus is in the east, absolutely, but it's still, they would come around. They didn't want to go down the desert in that blue section where it says Jerusalem. They would come around and then they would head uh, to the west and then they would come down south. They would actually come to the north. And then we had Ptolemy in the south. So we're going to find that the battles in verses 5 to 15 are between the Syrians and the Ptolemies, the king of the north, Seleucus, and the Ptolemies, the king of the south. And guess who's caught in the middle? Israel, God's people, were always caught in the middle in the wars between the king of the north and the king of the south. Now, to get our answer to question 10, we have to go on to verse 14 and 15. If you look in your lesson, we're looking for the king of the something and the king of the something. Now, in those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south. There is our first answer. Also, violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. Verse 15 of Daniel 11. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall all shall not withstand him even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist so here are two dominant symbols these symbols describe the two powers in the grecian empire that fight against each other there are continual wars between the kings of the south and the kings of the north and that's pretty much verses 5 to 15. so we come back here who is the king of the north? Friends, in prophecy, the king of the north looking forwards was always a religious power who exalted themselves against God. They came from the north. You know, Israel was always nervous about the kings coming from the north because they would be historically Assyria, coming up through Mesopotamia and then down through Syria into Israel. Um, also, the Babylonians and Medo-Persians came that way. So the kings of the north always came to destroy Israel, and they were usually religious powers in that they had gods and worshipped gods. Then in terms of the king of the south, the king of the south prophetically and symbolically always really stands for human power versus God. Where do we get that from? Well, do you remember what Pharaoh said during the, during the plagues, the 10 plagues? He said, who is, who is your God? Who is the God of Israel that I should know him? And so the king of the south always stands for human power, humanism, and secularism. 
um, it can have a religious component. And of course, who's caught in the middle? The people of God. Look, I don't have time to go through verses 5 to 15, but you can do your own study. Wikipedia even lists all the Ptolemaic rulers, the kings of the south. It also lists the Seleucid rulers, the kings of the north and the Syrians. And there's a lot of detail there. All right, so where we're up to, we've looked at Medo-Persia. We've just looked at Greece and we're now hurrying, hurrying on to pagan Rome, the next empire. In Daniel 11, verses 16 to 30, this is the next chunk of verses we're looking at. These give intricate details of who? The pagan Roman Empire. What are a few descriptions that Daniel gives of this power? And we go to verse 20. We haven't got time to read all the verses. Thank you for reading it through yourselves. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. So what were we looking for? There shall arise in his place one who's something somethings on the glorious kingdom. It'll be someone who imposes taxes. Would you be surprised to know that the one who imposed taxes was Caesar Augustus? And he died in his sleep in AD 14. Notice this one who imposed taxes. Uh, but within a few days he shall not be destroyed. But in a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. And so this refers to Caesar Augustus, um, for he was the one who imposed the taxes. The note says this is a reference to Caesar Augustus, who became the great taxer of the people. And in Luke 2, verse 1, we read, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And so, friends, do you remember the story? that um, Jesus and his mother Mary and his father Joseph uh, all travelled to Bethlehem, didn't they, for the census. And uh, that was when Caesar Augustus had all the world taxed and there was a census on at the same time. We're in Daniel 11, verses 16 to 30. We're looking now at verse 22. We're looking for the characteristics of the pagan Roman Empire and what are some of the descriptions of this power and be broken, and also the something of the covenant. I've put some extras in here so you can understand the context. We haven't had time to go through it all. With the force of a flood, what's that? The Roman armies came like a flood. They came fast. They, the Jewish nation, shall be swept away from before him, the Roman emperor Tiberius and his army. And this army, um, and be they would be broken, the Jews would be broken, and also... Rome would break the prince of the covenant. Now, we learned before in Prophecy Seminar Lesson 13 in Daniel chapter 9 that the Messiah is the prince of the covenant. Jesus Christ is the prince of the agreement between the kingdom of heaven and the Jewish nation, God's people in ancient times. What are a few descriptions Daniel gives of the pagan Roman Empire? This power would be broken. It would break the Jews and also break the prince of the covenant. Did you know it was the pagan Roman Empire that broke Christ, Jesus Christ, by crucifying him on the cross? Then we go to verse 28. His heart shall be moved against the holy something, the pagan Roman Empire. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant. There's our answer. So he shall do damage and return to his own land. 
So the heart of Rome, the Roman nation, the Roman Empire, the Roman army shall be moved against the Holy Covenant. What does this actually mean? The note says pagan Rome sought to destroy the covenant of God, the agreement with God and his people, and the covenant people of God, the Jews, through persecution and distortion of its doctrine. Some of you might remember that in AD 70, the Roman armies came and circled Jerusalem. Josephus says that there were so many uh, crosses outside the city that as the Jews would let themselves down on ropes to escape the starvation in the city, they were eating animals, they were eating babies. It was an absolutely terrible siege. The Romans would grab those Jews and they would crucify them. Josephus says there were so many crosses outside Jerusalem that one could barely walk between them. I guess that's why there's not a lot of trees outside Jerusalem today. So friends, pagan Rome sought to destroy the covenant of God and the covenant people of God through persecution. And Rome turned its power against God's people, the Christians, after the time of Jesus in the New Testament. So we're just looking at pagan Rome and uh, seeing how it works, but we're about to now change gear and go into a fourth empire dynasty and prophecy in regards to the Church of Rome. We go from pagan Rome to papal Rome, and we go to question 12. The next several descriptions in verses 31 to 39 portray the activities of the papacy. The papacy is just the name of the popes, the Church of Rome. You'll notice that many of the same descriptions found in Daniel 7 and 8 reappear in Daniel 11, which helps us to clearly identify the papacy as the power now being depicted. We jump into Daniel 11 and verse 31. They shall take away the something sacrifices. What would the papacy, the Church of Rome, do? And forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. So, friends, the papacy, the power now being depicted, took away the daily sacrifices. Now, I want to tell you that we covered this extensively in Prophecy Seminar Lesson 13 and Prophecy Seminar Lesson 15. There's no note on this because we've covered it. But basically, in ancient times in the Old Testament sanctuary, you know, there was an morning sacrifice. A bullock was sacrificed for the sins of the people. There was an evening sacrifice at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Remember, there's no daylight saving, so the sun would be setting early. So a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice representing these animals represented Jesus who would take away the sins of the world. The Church of Rome would set up an earthly system that would take away from the kingdom of God and would direct people's attention not to the heavenly sanctuary where Jesus is right now doing the judgment. We're living in the day of judgment, very serious times, but would direct people's attention away from Jesus, forgiving sins, listening to our prayers, um, sending his love to us, and would direct attention to an earthly sanctuary, an earthly priesthood, an earthly tabernacle, and an earthly ruler. And that is the head of the papacy. The next several descriptions in question 12 in verses 31 to 39 portray the activities of the papacy. We go back to verse 31. And the forces shall be mustered by him. They'll defile the sanctuary fortress and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. 
There's our answer. Friends, we know from previous studies the abomination means in Scripture a hateful thing, a terrible thing that defiles. And the Roman armies came and they surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And they were an abomination, a hateful thing. And they came in AD 70 and smashed the city. And they crucified and destroyed the Jews. They desolated God's city. And so in a, a future type, the Roman, pagan Roman army was symbolized then by the Church of Rome and they would take over. Lesson 15 clearly identified the papacy as the one who destroyed the ministry of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary by making the work of the sanctuary a work on earth instead of in the heavenly sanctuary. Well, this papal uh, kingdom, it says, the king shall do according to his own will. He shall something and something himself above every God. Verse 36, then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every God. He shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. What would this power do? He would exalt and magnify himself above who? Every God. Friends, here again is a reference to the blasphemous claims of the papacy as it attempted to exalt itself above God. Blasphemy in the Bible is claiming to be God or claiming power to forgive sins. These are very serious accusations. Robert Bellarmine wrote in his book on the authority of the councils, in volume one, page 266, all the names, what did he write? All the names which in the scriptures apply to Jesus Christ, all the same names are applied to the Pope. Friends, isn't that absolutely amazing that this earthly man heading up an earthly system has the same names that Jesus uses in scripture? Well, Pope Leo Thirteenth wrote this, we hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. Friends, we are representatives of God on the earth. We are servants of God on the earth, but in no way should any Christian ever say they take the place or hold the place of God Almighty. That would be absolute blasphemy. And then it says there is a man in, on earth who can forgive sins, and that man is the Catholic priest. Friends, I want to remind you when Jesus healed the paralytic who came down through Peter's roof, the roof of his house and was let down on a stretcher with ropes. The Pharisees accused Jesus of claiming to be God when Jesus said, son, thy sins are forgiven thee. They were absolutely incensed. They said Jesus had committed blasphemy because he being a man had claimed the prerogative of God and was saying that he could forgive sins. Friends, no man has power to forgive sin. All right, would you join me at the top of page six? We're on question 12 and part D. We're looking at he shall regard neither the something, uh, the desire of something in verse 37. All right, let's find out if we can narrow down specifically who this power is. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor the regard of any other God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. How is this possible? Well, friends, we have to ask the question, did the papacy ever get into a situation where they regarded neither desire for women? 
The note says this may possibly be a reference to the papacy's insistence on celibacy. Friends, Paul told us that he had the gift of celibacy. He was not going to be involved with a wife. He was full-time, 24-7, preaching God's gospel. But I want to tell you that celibacy is not a biblical principle. Paul said in the New Testament, it's better for a man to marry than to burn with lust and get into trouble. Friends, this rule of celibacy has caused more pain and more suffering to victims around the world than anything else. And so this power shall regard neither the desire of women. In part E, we go to verse 39, he shall divide the land for gain. How is that possible? Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. Friends, that foreign God by many commentators is described as the goddess, the mother of Jesus Christ, the goddess Mary. And you can see her here, that this power would not, um, uh, would not acknowledge the God of his fathers, but would acknowledge a foreign God. And uh, this is interesting because many people today worship Mary and they pray to Mary, not to Jesus. The scripture says in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus, the God man. So there's to be no one between us and God, just Jesus Christ as our high priest. So for people to pray to Mary and then ask Mary to get on to Jesus to forgive our sins is a great blasphemy according to the scripture. The note says this may be a reference when he divides the land for gain. This may be a reference to the papal attempt to be the one who decides who gets what lands, such as the Roman pontiffs did in dividing up the lands of the new world among the kings of Spain, Portugal, France and England. And there it is, Charlemagne's Holy Roman Empire. So friends, you need to be very clear that in ancient times, the Church of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church was the one who controlled Europe. And then I'm going to ask you to think about whether it's possible that that could happen again. The note says, Daniel 11 has traced for us once again the rise and fall of the various empires of antiquity. In startling detail, Daniel has indicated what is going to happen in Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and the papacy. Only the divine foreknowledge of God could have a, given us such a detailed history written in advance. But let us not miss the point behind it all. The real lesson we need to learn from this prophecy is that God is in control of world events. As these nations rise and fall, God is in control, and ultimately, he will accomplish his will. There's our theme again. Friends, whatever you're going through, you might be facing the loss of a job. You might be facing uh, family problems, financial problems, medical problems, health problems. Whatever you're going through, the God of heaven is still in control, and he watches over this earth and his will is going to be done. And many of us believe that Jesus Christ is coming very, very soon if you see what's taking place on the earth right now. So we've dealt with Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome. We've dealt with the papacy. We're now going to switch into the papacy in prophecy. And we're going to find out that the papacy is also called another name in the final end times. And that is... It is equated with and symbolic with and equal to an entity called the K-O-N, which is the King of the North.
We're in question 13, halfway down page six. Thank you so much for joining us for lesson 21. What happens at the time of the end? We're in Daniel 11, verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south attack him, uh, attacks him, and the king of the north shall come against him. Like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. What happens at the time of the end, friends? At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. What does this all mean? At this point in the prophecy, we've arrived at the time of the end. Since the events described in verses 40 to 45 are still future, we must not be too dogmatic on their exact fulfillment. However, we can carefully examine what Daniel says these powers will do in the last days, and that's what we're going to do. Question 14, what's the king of the north do in the last days? We're talking about the king of the south. What does the king of the north do? At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. There's our answer. He comes with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. There's our answer. The king of the north comes against the king of the south like a whirlwind. He comes through the countries. He overwhelms them. Friends, not only the king of the south, but also the king of the north is involved in this mighty conflict at the end of time. Remember, the king of the north is always a religious power. The king of the south can be a earthly power, like a secular power, a humanistic power. And some commentators say it could even be possibly a religious power. Question 15, what land does the king of the north enter in Daniel 11:41? He shall also enter the glorious land. There's our answer. And many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. What land does the king of the north enter? He enters the glorious land. What's the glorious land? Friends, the glorious land is a reference to Palestine. And for the part Israel will play in last day events, please be with us for Prophecy Seminar session number 22, which is the one that follows this one. So Palestine, Israel is known as the glorious land in Daniel 11, 16 and 41. It's known as the pleasant land in Daniel 8, 9. And some commentators even call it the what? The beautiful land. The beautiful land where Jesus was born, lived, dwelt and died. Well, how widespread will be his domain, the king of the north, in the time of the end? We go to 42, 43. We're in Daniel 11. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. So notice there that uh, Egypt shall not escape this power. Also the Libyans and the Ethiopians are also mentioned specifically. Would you join me at the top of page seven in question 17? In spite of the fact that the king of the north has conquered all this territory, what now troubles him? Oh, I do like verse 44. This is the work of God. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he, the king of the north, shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. Friends, some of you know from Revelation 15 and 16, those chapters, that the kings of the east 
um, are usually a reference to the armies of heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ riding out of heaven to come back at the second coming and rescue and deliver his people. So news from the east and the north shall trouble the king of the north because he's going to be overthrown. That's the good news tonight. Question 18, when he, the king of the north, is thus troubled, what does he do? We're in Daniel 11:44. There's a lot in this verse. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. There's our answer. What does he do when he's threatened? He destroys and annihilates people. Here again is depicted a final great conflict in which this power goes forth to completely destroy those who oppose it. We're on question 19. Where does this power seek to plant its tabernacle? Now listen to this verse very carefully. You need to understand there's two applications for verse 45. So the king of the north shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas, the Mediterranean, and the glorious holy mountain. That is where... Um, Jerusalem is built on the glorious holy mountain there near the Mount of Olives. Yet he, the king of north, shall come to his end and no one will help him. And so we were asked, where does this power, the king of the north, seek to plant its tabernacle? The answer is the glorious holy mountain. Friends, just pause a moment. I'd like to give you two quotes to give you a little bit more on this. I think there's two fulfillments of this. I see a spiritual fulfillment. And I see a physical fulfillment. Let's have a look at the spiritual fulfillment first. Reading a quote, pitching his palatial tents between the Mediterranean Sea and Jerusalem temple symbolizes the encroachment of the king of the north on the prerogatives of Christ's sanctuary ministry in heaven. As a consequence of this encroachment, the king of the north will be punished so that like the little horn animal, of Daniel 7 that he parallels, the king of the north will come to his end with none to help him. We're quoting there Daniel 11, 45. So this commentator, Mervyn Maxwell, writes, the little horn power and the king of the north seem to represent the same earthly power. And I totally agree. So there's a spiritual fulfillment that the king of the north camps in the glorious land the pleasant land the beautiful land he physically he spiritually camps there by directing people's attention to him and his sanctuary his priesthood and his work as he goes around the world and everyone worships him but friends there's also a physical side as well let's have a look at this quote what's the relationship between the church of rome the little horn power um, and the roman catholic church in jerusalem this quote says, Jerusalem is as important to the Vatican as it is to Jews and Muslims. For Catholics, Jerusalem is the birthplace of Christianity and the setting of many important biblical events. The holy city, as Catholic dogma states, is its universal headquarters. Does anyone really think the Vatican is genuinely interested in ceding control of these sites to Muslims? The answer is, of course, they're not. That's Stephen Ben Nunn on uh, his website, Israeli News Live. His article is entitled, The Vatican is Now in Control of Jerusalem. So, friends, we have a spiritual application of the King of the North 
camping in the Holy Land spiritually. He sets up a kingdom that opposes what Jesus is doing in the heavenly sanctuary with an earthly priesthood and takes away from God's daily sacrifice up there. And so also there's a physical dimension in that the Church of Rome is wanting to make Jerusalem its capital. And most people don't know that. They are starting to have conservatorships of the Holy Land sites. And that's why the Vatican is backing the work of Palestine and the Muslims. Question 20. What happens to this power, the King of the North, when it seeks to conquer the glorious Holy Mountain? We're in Daniel 11.45. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious Holy Mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. You know, friends, I just feel sorry for Daniel. Daniel's trying to see and vision. He sees all these armies and all these events. He tries to write it down in the language of his day and tries to understand what this all means. So this is um, just the background of Daniel 11. It's incredible, isn't it? So what about the king of the north? He comes to his what? He comes to his end and no one will help him. I want to ask the question, what does it mean he comes to his end? In Daniel 11.45, is there something that can describe in the scripture, can it give us some more information that this power comes to his end and no one will help him? Well, there absolutely is because we've just discovered that the king of the north is really another name for the little horn power in the papacy. So when we go back to Daniel 7.25, it says, for the little horn power shall um, shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall reign and rule for a time, times, and the dividing of times. He shall think he can change God's times and laws. Then in Daniel 7.26 it says, but the court will be seated. The uh, King James says, but the judgment will be set and the books will be opened and they shall take away his dominion. Whose dominion? The heavenly court takes away the rulership and the ownership and the dominion of the little horn power to consume it and destroy it forever the supreme court in heaven the high court in heaven overrules the work of the little horn power daniel 8 25 tells us the same thing but he the little horn power shall be broken without human means friends the god of heaven is the one who ends the work of this earthly power i go to the note Oh, before I go to the note, let me share with you some information on who is the king of the north. The king of the north, Daniel 11, has much in common with the little horn power. The little horn power found in Daniel 7 and 8 that we've covered in previous lessons. In Daniel 11, 36, 37, the king of the north challenges God and seeks to usurp him. In Daniel 8, the little horn power rises to the heavenly host, verses 10 and 11. And he also rises against the prince of the host. So the little horn power opposed the heavenly armies and also opposed the prince of princes, Jesus Christ. In Daniel 11.31, the king of the north desecrates the sanctuary and he abolishes the daily sacrifice representing Jesus' death on the cross. And this is the work the same little horn power did in Daniel 8, 11 and 12. Point number three in Daniel 11, 16 and 41. The king of the north establishes himself in the glorious land, meaning Israel, and he attacks the holy covenant. That's the agreement between the kingdom of heaven and God's people. Meanwhile, the little horn power in Daniel 8, 9 grew towards the glorious land and destroyed the holy people. 
Point number four, like the king of the north, a little horn power of Daniel 8 originates also from the north. Finally, the king of the north and the little horn power both die the same death. Isn't that fascinating? The former, the king of the north, comes to his end without any help in Daniel 11.45. While the little horn power, we now quote Daniel 8.25 and 2.45, will be destroyed, but not by human power. So friends, that gives us an understanding of the king of the north. But here's one more statement. The power, often called king of the north, and the little horn therefore represent the same characteristic features and the same behaviour. They come from the same direction and they share the same tragic death. Finally, they cover the same time span, extending from the fall of the Roman Empire to the time of the end. We then conclude that the king of the north and the little horn power represent the same power. Which power is that? The power of the ancient power known as the Church of Rome, which is today the Roman Catholic Church. Thank God this power will come to an end. The final great controversy will cease. This power may seek to destroy God's last day people, but the promise is that he will come to his end and no one shall help him. Many of the details of this final conflict are not totally clear from Daniel 11. One thing is clear, however, there will be a final great conflict between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And ultimately, Christ and his people will win the conflict. Now, Lesson 24, which is entitled The Mark of the Beast. Everybody has an idea of what the Mark of the Beast is. But friends, if you don't know who the beast is, you're going to get the Mark of the Beast wrong. So don't miss and miss out on Lesson 24 in just a few weeks' time, our next session. So it says here in the note, Christ and his people will win the conflict. Lesson 24 will explore the various powers that are involved in the great final conflict. While Daniel does not mention them in great detail, the book of Revelation clearly delineates the powers that are involved in the final controversy on earth. It's only reasonable to assume that these same powers are active in the final conflict described here in Daniel 11. Can I ask you to pause a moment? I'm going to ask the question, just who are these last day kings or rulers? Who might these last day powers be? Let's get this prophecy and put it in a context. So today, can we find out who is the king of the north and who is the king of the south? Friends, I want to tell you that Israel is caught between these two powers. Friends, the king of the north has again assembled a kingdom. It's called the United States of Europe. And there is the symbol of the European Union. It's been tied together in uh, the last 20 or 30 years through the advent of the euro. And so they have a common currency. But behind all this is the activities and work of the papacy. And that is the flag of the Church of Rome in Italy. Meanwhile, the King of the South, we believe, could be a secular power, meaning humanism, human power versus God's power. Some say it's a religious power, like Islam, um, and there is the crescent and the star, also on the, uh, the uh, flag of Turkey, but also representing the nation of Islam. So friends, in terms of the King of the North and the empire he now controls, what about Europe? Friends, this is the ancient moniker a few years ago about Europe. It was the rebuilding of the Tower of Babel. They talked about the formation of the European Union. It used to be called the uh, 
European Economic Community, the EEC, then they changed it to the European Community, the EC, and then they changed it to the European Union, the EU. But notice there that in rebuilding the Holy Roman Empire today into the European Union, that in Revelation 18, two, it tells us that Babylon, the great symbolic Babylon, we're looking at ancient Babylon there, but symbolic Babylon will fall. It is doomed. And then in Revelation 18, 21, it says, thus with violence, the great city of Babylon should be thrown down and not be found anymore. Well, friends, if you look at that flag of the 12 stars, something disappeared. The Tower of Babel disappeared and we were left with the 12 stars. What does the Church of Rome say about the 12 stars? They say the 12 stars come from Revelation chapter 12. We're going to look at that in a future lesson. And that these are the 12 stars around the pure virgin of Revelation 12. There's only two women in Revelation 12. There's a pure virgin and there is the harlot. So the Church of Rome says that she is the pure virgin and the 12 stars behind that actually refer to the founding nations of the European Economic Community. What's this building? What does it look like? This, of course, is the European Parliament. It's in Strasbourg, France. Does that building look strangely familiar? Hmm. I wonder, does it look like a sort of unfinished Tower of Babel? And that's exactly what it's meant to be. And so inside the member nations of the European community that controls the EU, there they are. They meet together. They make laws. They make secular laws. They make religious laws. So friends, here is Mary, there are the 12 stars and the 12 stars stand for those founding nations. So friends, this tells you a little bit about what the King of the North is up to in the last days. So in terms of world history and where we are today, can this prophecy tell us exactly where we're up to and what we're facing? Well, let's go back 30 years to the Sunday Telegraph. And this is what it says. If European federalism triumphs, the EC, meaning the European community, today called the EU, will indeed be an empire, and it is an empire today. But it will lack a what? It'll lack an emperor. Can any of you guess who might, uh, in reinvigorating the old Holy Roman Empire of ancient times from the Dark Ages, from uh, 538 to 1798, the 1260 year period, can you imagine who might be the head of the United States of Europe. Let's go to Charles Malik, a former ambassador from the United Nations to the United States. What did he say? The only hope for the Western world lies in an alliance between who? The Roman Catholic Church, which is the most commonly influential, controlling and unifying element in Europe and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Rome must unite with Eastern Orthodoxy because the Eastern Orthodox Church controls the Western Middle East, the Eastern end of the Mediterranean. And if they don't solidify that control, that is the Roman Catholic Church, Islam will march across Europe. Islam is political. It's not just religious, it is political. The only hope of the Western world lies then in a united Europe under the control of who? The ambassador said under the control of the Pope. I finished with this statement. And then he says all Protestant Christians around the globe must come into submission to the Pope 
so we will have a unified Christian world. That's Charles Malik, UN Ambassador to the United States. Friends, I hope that gives you an idea of where we're heading right now and the power of the papacy in our modern world. We go to question 21 as we close. What happens to God's people in this final time of trouble? We go to Daniel 12.1. This is actually our day. Daniel wrote, at that time, Michael, Mikael, one like, one equal with God, a reference to Jesus, shall stand up. He stands up in the heavenly sanctuary. He is the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble. Did you notice that? That's referring to our time. And there shall be a time of trouble. What sort of trouble? Just a little time of trouble, a medium time of trouble, or a big time of trouble? We read on Daniel 12.1. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Friends, I want to suggest to you that we're in that time right now. We're at a time in the world where democracies, democratically elected governments are falling prey to totalitarianism, the rule of law, police forces, reduced freedoms, losing freedom of conscience, losing freedom, freedom of speech, losing freedom of assemblies where churches are not able to meet freely unless they abide by certain conditions. Even to that time, and at that time, your people, Daniel, shall be delivered. Everyone who's found written in the book. What happens to God's people in this final time of trouble? And at that time, Mikael, Michael, shall stand up. The judgment's finished in heaven. He stands up. He gets ready to return to planet Earth. And there shall be a time of trouble. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Thank God deliverance comes to God's people. And in the midst of this final great time of trouble, this final conflict of the great controversy, Michael comes and delivers God's people. Every person found written in the book. While the days, the last days will be troublesome times, Daniel ends on a high note of assurance to the people of God. Deliverance will come just as deliverance had come to the Hebrews in Babylon. In the fiery furnace, and in the lion's den. Friends, remember, there's two tests coming. In Daniel 3, there is a test over worship, false worship, worshipping an image and not worshipping the God of heaven. We should never bow our knee to anyone but the God of heaven. We should never take orders but anyone from the God of heaven in regards to our worship time, our worship day, the way we worship, the person we worship. And in Daniel 6, there was a prohibition on true worship, that Daniel was not to worship the God of heaven and for 30 days was not to pray to any other God. So friends, we're living in the days where Daniel 3 and Daniel 6 will be issues. Public worship, enforced public worship, and also restricted private worship to worship on the day that God gave us in his word, to worship on the seventh day of the week as we covered in lesson number 11 and 12 prophecy seminar lesson 11 and 12 we need not be overly concerned about the details of last day events because we know that ultimately god's people will be delivered a final question tonight is do you wish to be delivered when michael stands up to deliver god's people in the final controversy friends i hope you say yes that's exactly what i want to do i believe in the god of heaven I'm choosing only to worship him and I need his deliverance. In fact, today we need his deliverance on a daily basis.
What do we discover in tonight's lesson, our three theme questions? Well, why aren't some prayers always answered immediately? What do we learn from lesson 21? We learned that Daniel 11 shows us that evil demonic powers like fallen angels can intervene and prevent God answering in the way and time that he chooses. Number two, what order do the panorama of nations follow in Daniel 11? The same time frame as Daniel 8, Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome and papal Rome slash king of the north. So the same, same time frames are used as Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8 and Daniel 11. They all parallel and match as you remember from the chart. When does deliverance finally come to God's people? It's when Michael stands up. It means the heavenly judgment is finished and Jesus Christ returns to planet Earth. For those of you doing the quiz tonight, um, thank you for printing out the envelopes I send out with the email. And uh, we're going to go into two response questions on the left in the boxes there. Number one, are you thankful that God is in control of human history? I am, or I think we would uh, just be dissolving into worry. Please tick the box if that's your response or you can answer that in your heart. Number two, is it your desire to stand with God's people when Michael stands up to deliver them? I hope your answer is yes, you want to be there. All right, let's go to our quiz questions tonight. I think we have um, only one false. I won't tell you how many true and I hope that's helpful. Daniel 10 reveals there is a great controversy going on behind the scenes of Earth's history. Daniel 10 reveals there's a great controversy going on behind the scenes of Earth's history. Thanks for writing true or false as your answer. Well, number two, God's kept changing his plans because he's never certain what the nations are going to do. Hmm? True or false? That shouldn't take you too long. Number three, Daniel 11 parallels Daniel 2, 7, 8 and 9, giving us the panorama of nations through which human history will pass true or false daniel 11 31 to 39 reveals the papacy is the major oppressor of god's people in the dark ages true or false question 5 daniel 11 40 to 45 presents one final power who is it the kon the king of the north that seeks to dominate and destroy the people of god but it comes to its end and God delivers his people. Is that true or false? All right, well, I think I've given you a big hint tonight on these answers, so I think you should know the answers already. Let's go quickly. Question one is true. Question number two is false. Question number three is true. Question number four is true. And question number five is true. The answers tonight are true, false, true, true, and true. Friends, in our Wall of Truth in the Prophecy Seminar tonight, in Lesson 21, we learned in Daniel 11 that the King of the North is defeated. He will lose. So friends, this is what we're learning in our Wall of Truth in our Prophecy Seminar. I'm asking you to prepare next week's lesson. It's Prophecy Seminar Lesson 22, and that's going to be called Daniel's People Delivered. It talks about Israel. What are we going to learn? To whom does the term Israel refer to today? Ethnic Jews or the true followers of Jesus Christ? Are some prophecies conditional on man's obedience? And finally, who eventually took on the role of God's chosen people? Father in heaven, I want to thank you tonight for giving us the power of your Holy Spirit to rightly understand your scriptures. 
Lord, we admit that Daniel wrote some amazing prophecies, and these are among some of the most difficult and complicated prophecies in the Bible. We bring humility to it, Lord, because we need divine wisdom. This is a topic that needs to be studied, restudied, and studied again. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for showing us the big picture that stretches right down to the world in which we now live in. And thank you for keeping us true and faithful in all the decisions that we have to make. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel with Pastor David Price. For more information about this series, you can visit the YouTube page, True Blue SDA, all one word. That's True Blue SDA. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.